Welcome to episode 111 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to discussing the work of writer director J.J. Abrams, as well as his greater Bad Robot universe. I'm your host for this week. My name is Marcelo Inestroza, joined as always by my fellow co-host, Matt Crandall. And on today's edition of the show, we'll be discussing episodes 20 and 21. So the first episode up this week, 602 Eastern Standard Time. I have become the destroyer of worlds. Absolutely. The Oppenheimer quote gets in there, and they do talk a little bit about Oppenheimer, who, of course, is infamous for for creating stuff that could be the destroyer of worlds. And nice that they touch on that, because this is mostly an episode about the doomsday device and whether this thing is going to destroy our world or if we can contain it and find a way to neutralize things because after last week when Walternet accelerated Folivia's pregnancy had the baby be born took Henry's blood sample they have used it to make up this vial that basically took all of Folivia's DNA markers out and left only the ones that Henry and Peter share. And this thing they use to then turn on the machine in their universe. Now, we knew that Walternate was up to some shady shit when, you know, he's acting like he's proud grandpa, but all this weird blood stuff was happening. And this is what he was after was, is there a way for us to turn the machine on without having Peter come back? Because in a speech, he does mention that Peter, as much as I love him because he is my son, he chose the other side. So like, we can't expect to just go grab him and have him do the right thing or the thing that Walternet thinks is the right thing. So they turn on the machine and we realize as the episode goes on that when they turned on their machine, our machine in the prime universe activates as well. And when this happens, Shit goes off. Locusts start flying. Lightning storms. It is a plethora of bad news. And throughout the episode, Team Fringe has to figure out two two things. Why the machine is turned on by itself and why all of this bad stuff is happening. So, Marcella, what are you thinking as literally some of these biblical plagues like locusts and stuff start start to go down in the early part of the episode? I am really enjoying it because of two things. One, for someone who has been semi-supportive of Alt Olivia, I'm really, really happy that she is seeing Walternet for the individual that he is. And basically, she tries to find the Cortexafan that they made on the other side to go to our universe to warn Olivia to see if she if there's any way that she can help to save both universes not just hers so she is fully under she is at the point of understanding that the best case of action right now is to save both universes instead of killing countless amounts of people so i'm really really happy with that and the second thing that i was not happy with from a writing standpoint the writers sort of give away the 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 main crux of this episode in in the open in that when 
the machine is turned on in the alternate universe, all funky things start happening in our universe. So in essence, the two machines, a, a lot of time that could have been devoted to some some other things were devoted with, you know, our team discovering what the hell happened on the other side when us as an audience member, we already knew what happened. No, I think you're right that they could have played it one of two ways where the way that they did the opening scene, we know that Walternate is turning on the machine. So when stuff goes haywire, we already know why this is happening. And they explain like the quantum entanglement and all that as we go along. So that's the only stuff that's revealed. But if they had actually saved that Walternate scene to later, so where all of this weird stuff is happening and then our side realizes the machine has turned on and us not know for the first two acts of the show and then cut to the other universe and have that Walternate Brandon scene explain it as our characters on this side are coming to the same realization it probably would land a little bit better because the the gray area they tried to play in was, you know, we were ahead of the curve and our characters were catching up to us, but it might've actually been a little bit more dynamic if we were in the dark too about how this has happened. So it is an interesting choice that they went with the dramatic irony route because they don't really play it up that much. And it it is just kind of like, yeah, we know what's happening and the characters are freaked out and do have to go on a mission to try and figure out what is happening. But because we know, and we know that they're going to figure it out by the end of this episode, because all the clues are there, it does undercut the tension that could have been there in that first half. I did like that when this is happening, Nina says to, to everybody like, okay, look, we have limited amounts of Amber that we can deploy to certain spots if it's where the universes are thinning. But Olivia, there is a guy that we can track down who knows a lot more than he has led on. William Bell trusted him and we need to find him. And Olivia's like, okay, who is this? And she's like, well, you actually already know him. It's Mr. Bowling Manager, Sam Weiss, and we need him. Now we see Sam before all of this and he's at the bowling alley and he realizes that stuff is starting to go screwy because there's a little bit of a, a power flicker at the bowling alley. And there's a nice big Lebowski call out where there's a dude bowling and he's like, hey, Donnie, you know, shut the fuck up, Donnie. You're out of your element. So they mentioned Donnie in the bowling alley. And then we move on and Sam disappears. So part of this is they have to track down where Sam is because he has the information that everything is starting to roll. So he starts to get into action before Team Fringe can meet up with him. Um, what are you thinking as, you know, we're we're finally learning that Sam, who we know was involved with the first people's book because of that interaction he had with Nina a few weeks ago, is going to be some sort of linchpin in this whole thing, in our understanding what's going on. But then he is MIA for a little bit. Yeah, I really like the return of Sam Weiss and the way that he played into the story with our characters. But again, I feel that structurally for me as a writer, I mean, guys, I don't get on my high horse too often on this show, except for Lost, but I'm going to do it right now. As a writer, it would have 
helped a, a billion times more if, like you said, we learned that everything happening, everything happening in this episode on our side was eventually caused by Walternet. And if we found some way to bring in Sam Weiss to help us figure that out, I thought it could have played much better execution-wise. That being said, I really, really loved the sort of panic on Nina's face and the sort of like, holy shit, I don't know what to do. When, when Nina tells Olivia, listen, when Belly said, you know, if there's one person that you can trust, it's Sam Weiss. And he has the answers, right? He will he will lead you down the correct path. He reminded me of those guys in, you know, those religious figure guys, the guys who protected the Holy Grail in Indiana in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, right? So I thought of, you know, in, in that, uh, using that as an example, I thought of Olivia as Indiana Jones and Sam Weiss as one of those priest guys who protected the Holy Grail. What that revealed, I thought was interesting, but for me, this episode worked, but the execution from a writing standpoint really bugged me for the most part. Yeah, I totally understand that. I think the strongest moments writing-wise in this episode come from the dynamic that we haven't talked much about, which is Walter and Peter on this side, where there is a scene and Peter realizes, I'm the guy who has to to do this. And he thinks, okay, if the machine is turned on, the only way to turn it off is for me to get in it and to turn it off. And he says, so, you know, give me the keys. Let me go do this. And Walter realizes that this is the moment the observer was preparing him for in a previous episode. And that was when the observers were, were wondering Will Walter be willing to let his son die to do the right thing? And we knew that in that instance, he was. So he has changed. He is actually willing to lose his son to let the universe go on. And there's this moment where Walter realizes this and he still has to let everything happen. And later in the episode, he he's, you know, reaching out to God and and questioning everything because Peter does try and get into the machine and he gets zapped like Tim, the human piece of toast in Jurassic Park. He goes flying the second he touches this thing. And it is because the machine thinks that someone is in it. So it has put up a fail safe so that no one can get in. And when he's thrown to the ground and injured, they take him to the hospital. And this is where Walter kind of has this personal reckoning as Olivia gets there. And and they're realizing, you know, the severity of everything. And now it's not as simple as let's have Peter just get in and turn the machine off. They're like, the machine thinks that Peter is in there and nobody can get in to turn it off because of this safety system. So what are you thinking as our one main plan to maybe shut this down totally backfires? I really like that that construct of the fringe team having a plan, and then the plan not working because essentially the machine is hot-wired since it already thinks Peter is in the machine. So by having Peter touch the machine and, you know, be thrown God knows how many feet to the ground 
and being unconscious. That leaves our characters up Shit's Creek and, and we don't know what to do. Also, that brings to fruition all the stuff that I didn't quite like with Sam Weiss and Olivia. Everything that happens with them comes into play. My favorite scene of this whole episode, I mean, right now I'm going to sound like a hypocrite because I've been, I've been very judgmental on the writing of this episode, but the scene that really spoke to me is a scene with Walter in the chapel in the hospital. And Walter basically begs God to save Peter. He basically says, do what you want with me, but save our universes. That to me really says Walter has grown as an individual. As much as as crazy and as kooky as he is, Walter, uh, uh, like you said, or you didn't say, this is Walter's come to Jesus moment. If I was going to stand up and give the writers in uh, an award for a moment of fringe this season, that would be the moment. There's one thing that bugged the crap out of me, okay? When 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 Peter gets thrown back after he touches the machine, why in the hell do they take him to a regular hospital? Why in the... Can you tell me what are those doctors going to be able to figure out about Peter that his own father won't be able to? Like, it just drives me nuts. The unfortunate answer is because they need the thing that happens next in the next episode to occur. So it is a convenience that doesn't really make sense because if Massive Dynamic has all these resources, we probably have a pretty great crack medical team on site near the machine who can do that. Oh, and by the way, to to to, to further pump up Massive Dynamic as a medical facility. Remember when they had that one guy who was half dead, who tried to kill Olivia in the first season, they communicated with him through his fucking brainwaves. Huh? Maybe they can fix him. But uh, so the other thing, as you mentioned, that chapel scene is really nice. And then after looking for Samwise, Samwise just shows up and tells Olivia, like, take me to the machine. We got to stop what's going on. I know how to do this. But that's all the, the our universe action for this episode. The interesting things about the other side is kind of the way they have really done a lot in the last couple episodes to take two characters and do a complete 180, which is Folivia, who has been team bad, but shown a few shades, goes full good guy for our universe in this episode. And also Walternet, who... This whole time, we have actually understood where he was coming from. The trauma of losing his son, the way he felt that these invaders were targeting him, how he had said in the past they would never experiment on children, that was a line they wouldn't cross, has gone the entire opposite way to be mustache-twirling villain because that kid's thing went out the window with Henry. They are willing to do whatever. And in this, when Folivia knows that something is going down on Liberty Island. She shows up and she's like, hey man, what the hell? And he's like, look, we have to do this. Fuck that other universe right to hell. I don't give a shit about them. They took my son. I sacrificed my own son so that your kid, my grandson, this baby, 
could live. So don't come in here and pretend like I'm not king shit doing the right thing. And eventually he realizes like Folivia is can't be trusted and her allegiance do not lie with their universe because she is actually seeing the entire picture. She knows that it's not as clear cut as let's just destroy an entire universe because she has been in our universe and spent time with these people. So she's realizing there has to be a third option. There has to be a better way. But Walter and it is like tough shit, lady. They capture her. He throws her into that familiar room where our Olivia was held. And he goes and he visits her and he's like, ha ha, gotcha. You can't do anything. And, you know, we end the episode on this down note where he's like, you could have had it all, but you threw it away to be some goody two shoes. And now I'm going to destroy the world and there's nothing you can do about it. So I thought it was interesting that we have built Folivia from an evil agent to be somebody who now sees the shades of gray and Walternate, who used to be a very rational and everything he did from as much as we didn't agree with what he wanted to do, I could always tell where he was coming from. Now he has flipped and they've made him like super evil just in time for the finale. I think I think his evil turn to becoming Emperor Palpatine at the at the at the you know last second here is the fact that our you know his Peter vis-a-vis our Peter decided to leave. So I think that was one of the final straws that broke the camel's back. But the other thing that made him, you know, say, fuck that universe and I need to save my universe is with his grandson, right? Or, or for Olivia's child. So for Olivia's child gave him a moral scapegoat, a way to get out of it, a way to rationalize it in his head. We can explain that away in our own fringe head canon. But if the writers were going to do that, it would have been really good to see some other scenes with Walter Nett mulling this decision in earlier episodes. But I understand, you know, at the time that this at the time that this show was made, the writers had a deadline and they didn't have that much time to do what they were going to do. So, but I, but I guarantee you now, if, if, if this show was made today, I think that we would understand Walter's net, Walter Nett's choice to go from rationality to madness. I think that the writers today would take that from a psychological point and work on it and build up to it. So when the final scene in this episode happens, we understand it from a logical standpoint. I like the tiny scene between Lincoln and Olivia in uh, Olivia's apartment, for Olivia's apartment, before she goes to Livery Island to try and go into our universe. It's really cute. It really works. And I like them as a couple. That's all I got. You are always Team Lincoln. And it was a nice, nice moment in an episode that's pretty heavy. We move on to the final episode that we're going to talk about this week. The episode is entitled The Last Sam Weiss. Let's go fly a kite and see if we can get struck by some lightning. As lightning does strike more than twice in this episode, things are going crazy because of the machine. And as this episode goes on, they realize that 
Sam Weiss says, like, look, it's never meant to be a doomsday device. And this is just what's happening here where it's like the apocalypse um, is because the machine is is confused because it thinks that it's on and that somebody's in it operating. And because of the quantum entanglement of these two devices in two different universes, they realize that using these magnets, Walter shows us, because they are in two different spots across the universes, there actually is this weird like vortex thing that's happening so that the points between the two machines, all hell is breaking loose and nature is being turned on its head. And the way that we can fix this is if we move our machine to the same location as their machine to at least centralize these events. And I love there's a moment where Royals is like, but would that not be catastrophic for us to put it in the same spot? Because then it's like all of this power in one place and we're putting it on Liberty Island near one of the most densely populated cities in the world. And he's like, yeah, I get it. But at least if we do this, it won't be as unpredictable as it is now. So it's going to be a whole operation to try and move this device. But I thought that was really cool that we see the way that these two things that exist in both universes, but are linked was very interesting. And we lay the groundwork by talking about this machine to actually let us know that this quantum entanglement is kind of how the typewriter stuff has been working this whole time between universes and the typewriter and the mirrors that we haven't seen in a hot minute become a huge part of this episode, which I actually was one of my favorite parts that something that we have long established since the early going of fringe, the pawn shops, the, the typewriters with the mirror all comes into play in this episode as if they knew from the get go that we were going to like this spot, which of course I don't believe that they did. They just thought it was something cool and they found a way to loop it all back in. So I really liked that this episode pays off a lot of stuff that we have picked up along the way and explains it in a a new light that makes it seem more logical and more thought through than I honestly think that it was. I, unlike the last episode that we talked about, I thought the writing in this episode was genius because you just said, Matt, they took something so innocuous that was introduced seasons ago and they used it to explain this quantum entanglement between our machine and the alternate universe's machine. So I really, really liked how the writers took that one little kernel that they introduced years ago and they made it useful to the story that they were telling in this episode. But my favorite thing about this episode was when Peter wakes up from his, you know, you know, coma, essentially, his, his brain is kind of scrambled and for some reason, he believes that he is in the alternate universe. So I don't know how. He leaves a hospital. He gets a cab. He goes all the way to New York to pick up a silver dollar. And then somehow he ends up on Liberty Island. Now, okay, for those of you listening at home, I know what you're probably saying right now. We're screaming into your phones. Marcelo, it's just a TV show. I know, I know, I know. But there are just these little things about the way that characters get from one place to another in certain 
in certain movies and TV shows that bug the crap out of me. And for some reason, uh, the way that Peter just strolled about the universe really bugged me in that aspect. But with that being said, the universe is the universe is upside down right now. There's lightning storms everywhere. The, you know, there's there's burn people coming into the you know hospital that he's at. So everything that he did can be explainable by by just saying the world is chaos. So that's how somebody with a credit card can do this many things and not run into any problems. That is a way that you can explain it. But my least favorite part of this episode is that obviously when Peter wakes up with amnesia at at first, it feels like amnesia. I'm like, just fuck right off. Get out of here. This is a terrible device. Then we find out that it's actually more than that. It's like his brain is scrambled up and he's thinking that he's in the other universe. But this is the part that doesn't track for me because yes, our Peter was born in the other universe. He grew up till age 10 or whatever in the other universe. Then he came and he lived in our universe for his entire life, except for about a week and a half where he went to the other side with Walter in it. So I'm like, where is he getting all of these memories from? Because it's not like some sort of quantum entanglement where he's getting memories from a different version of Peter crossing into his because there is no other version of Peter. Our Peter is dead. So I just wondered, how does a guy who only vacationed once in the alternate universe in his conscious mind know so much about the layout of their city compared to the one that he actually grew up in? So that was just like a big question mark for me, where I know why they wanted to do this, to show his confusion and to show how the universe is upside down right now, but it just rang a little bit too convenient and a little bit false for me. I was just like, I don't know if there had been another Peter that had grown up in that other universe and spent all sorts of time knowing the the layout of their New York versus our New York, it would make way more sense than like somehow he is convinced that everything that's happening in this universe is the same as the place that he vacationed once for a week. Like, I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand why they wanted to take it this way, but I extend that further to the confusing ending. When we're watching the, the very end of this, you're like, okay, well all bets are off. Cause this is some weird time travel Terminator, John Connor bullshit that I didn't expect fringe to pull out of a hat. So I, I'm willing to forgive it, but that was my least favorite part was when he wakes up with the amnesia. But I do like that, you know, it wasn't so easy that he just shows up in New York. They do at least have that scene with the cabbie being like, dude, are you high? And he's like, no, take me. It's an $800 fare. Let's go. The other thing, the other thing that doesn't work, this episode really feels to me to be, it it really seems to have a ticking clock on it. And on the show, you and I, we love ticking clocks. Am I, am, I, am I right to make that assumption? You are correct. And it seems that multiple times in this episode, characters that we love take time to just have these discussions. And I'm like, guys, how much time do we have here? The world is being ripped apart and you guys are stopping to talk. Like, how much time do we have here? 
you know, you can stop me if I if I'm way off. But the other thing that this episode really felt like if Fringe didn't have another season, this episode really had the smell of a serious finale. If you you know, if you take away that giant what the fuck moment at the very, very end of this episode, which we're gonna talk about, I'm sure, but I don't want to talk about that because that is like some John Connor bullshit, like you said. Um, but it really felt that this, if it really felt from a construction standpoint that this episode could have served as a entire finale, a conclusion to the premise of the entire show. You know, am I right to make that assumption? Yeah, I think you're right, especially this one hand in hand with the episode we'll talk about next week, the actual finale, because there are many examples of shows like this that were always kind of on the bubble where they didn't know if they would get renewed or not. And they always would end a season in a way that if the show got canceled, it would serve as a fine series finale, but they always drop like one little nugget that if it comes back, then they have an open door. And this does feel like, oh man, the, the ratings are not what they used to be. We might not come back for a fourth season. We got to pay off this and this and this, and we're doing like a bit of a, a checklist accelerating a lot of ideas that if played out slower, I think would really work and would really hit, but because we're really cramming them into this 42 minutes, it just feels like it goes by so quick. And there are a lot of big ideas in this episode. So we do find out Sam Weiss is not the Sam Weiss who wrote the first people's book as we were kind of led to believe when he had a talk with Nina a few weeks ago, he is one of many Sam Weisses. So basically everybody in his family names their kids Sam Weiss and they give them the mantle of being in charge of this first people's information and knowing the prophecies and all sorts of things handed down. So it's very much Viserys whispered the song of ice and fire to him in secret. And so that's what this is like. It's, you know, I'm one of many Sam Weisses and I just happen to know all this information. So he says, Olivia, look, we can get a crowbar, this mystical device that will allow us to trick the machine into deactivating long enough for Peter to get into it, Peter to set everything right, and we can sort of shut this shit down. They go on a mission to find the key and the crowbar, and there's like all this action with lightning and museums. And I got to tell you, as cool as it was, when they open up the box and there is a scroll that they unfurl to show us what the crowbar is, this was the most fucking Carlo Rambaldi alias shit I have ever seen where Olivia is on the scroll. And I'm like, this is the Rambaldi drawing of Sidney Bristow on fringe. So like, this is the exact one-to-one direct copy equivalent of something a bad robot show has already done, which is fine because we already have the Peter thing and I want Olivia to get involved. And when they do finally tell us how she can become the crowbar, I love that. But in that moment, when they unfurl that scroll and we see a drawing of Olivia, I was just like, fuck right off. I, I can't believe they let this happen again on another bad robot show. What are you thinking, Marcelo, as Rambaldi rears his head in the Fringe universe? 
as I was watching this scene, I shit you not, guys, at home, and I'm not kidding. When I saw the scroll and and you know, and we saw that Olivia is essentially the key that will allow Peter to get into the machine and try and do something, I was like, oh fuck, this is gonna piss Matt right off. Because I was like, I was like, fuck, this is some alias bullshit. I didn't say it out loud, but I I I I had it in my head. I was like, fuck, this is some alias bullshit. Uh, you know, but 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 you know, you know, to to your credit, the the way that the writers explain it, and the way that Olivia has to, you know, concentrate and use her, uh, use her uh, connection to Cortexafan and use telepathy to 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 help Peter step into the machine is cool, but the whole. Rambaldi thing, the whole bad robot thing. Look, for somebody who is not swimming in the bad robot universe like we are and like we've been doing for God knows how long, that thing is not going to bother anyone. But since we are who we are, that you know, you know, that pisses us off. Matt, it makes him enraged. <laughs> Me, it just makes me go, fuck. You know, and I wouldn't say it's rage because I do think that the way that they work it into the story works, but I imagine that there is some sort of dartboard at the bad robot offices where they've got like up on a board, like pregnant woman gets kidnapped. They've got, you know, uh, mysterious prophecy, strange drawings. And they just, if they can't come up with idea, they turn to the bad robot bag of tricks and see which one they can work in. But as a Peter and Olivia shipper, the moment they unfurl that, is kind of great because you're like, ah, they were fated to be together. Like these, this is a one true pairing um, because look, they are the yin and yang that can stop the apocalypse before we knew that Peter was key to this, but now we're seeing it's only Peter in conjuncture with Olivia that this all makes sense. So I think if you are viewing it from that angle, you're like, okay, great. This is, this works. No problem. But bringing in the baggage of doing a podcast where we just rewatch Alias and Lost before this, there's a lot of stuff that keeps popping up that I'm like, these are signature bad robot J.J. Abrams isms that it's surprising. I like the way that they work in in an organic way. But if you are making that checklist of similarities, it's not just a one point list. We're starting to get to like point 15. And this is an episode where they mention a Faraday cage, or maybe that was the previous one. Somebody mentions a Faraday cage, which also gets us thinking, of course, of Daniel Faraday on Lost, which I always appreciate. So I'm not as frustrated with that. I do love where they go after this, where they say, Olivia, the way you can stop this machine is with your mind. You got to use your Cortexafan powers. We can't juice you with Cortexafan because you will die. But the power has been in you all along. You just have to unlock it. And the way that they can do a dry run is by getting her to try and send a message through the typewriter. And so we see her trying and we think she has failed. What are you thinking as she's trying to send this message through the typewriter? And in the moment, it seems like it's unsuccessful. I think it's really cool. But like I said before, I mean, I don't be, I don't mean to be the contrarian in, you know, in this episode, but like I said before, I think a lot of ideas that are given in this that that are that are presented in this episode would have worked a lot better 
if they were fed out between multiple episodes. Because like I said, this episode has a ticking clock to it. So seeing Olivia sitting there trying to get a typewriter to, 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 you know, you know, type what she has in her head is cool. And, you know, it's a cool way to connect Olivia with Peter and the scroll thing. That's cool. I understand it. It works. But from a, but from a point of just saying, guys, how much time do we have here? If I, you know what? I could fix this. I could fix this with a, with a editorial thing. If in this episode we had a clock that gave us a, a time to when the, to when the alternate universe was going to implode and just become one universe, that, that would have pacified me. And that would have made me okay with a lot of scenes in this episode where I thought our, our, our character should have been pushing the story forward to the ultimate end of this episode instead of just sitting around and looking at a typewriter as cool as it is and as awesome as awesome as it as awesome as it was that the writers found a way to make the Peter and Olivia relationship essential to saving our universe I didn't completely vibe with it from a sense of structure and the way that it was written just because I felt that there was a sense of urgency in this episode that the that the writers didn't really particularly pay off in my mind in a satisfying way. Yeah, and I totally understand that. I think the emotional and, you know, mythological payoffs are bigger than they certainly could have made the the forward momentum action more important, but they kind of let it languish a bit compared to these other elements. And so I did like that as Olivia is trying to send this message through the typewriter without success, they say to her, remember, you've actually done this before. And we link back to an episode from seasons ago where Olivia had to turn off the red lights. And so I like, okay, that actually makes that episode more important because it's building to this big moment. And then when Astrid does see that the typewriter is typing out, just it's delayed. It's a much delayed response. And it is the phrase that has become a hallmark of Fringe, be a better man than your father. I like all these moments that we are tying in so much of our past mythology and bringing it all back around. And this is all happening as they track down confused Peter when he tries to go to Liberty Island to visit his dad. And you're like, freaking moron, what are you doing? (laughs) And they, and they, they grab him. And then all of a sudden, like when Olivia and Walter show up, he then gets it back together and he, they say, okay, it must've been a result of the head trauma which is the quick explain, which of course smells like bullshit, but they, they say, all right, let's do this. And as Astrid tells them the typewriter thing worked, Olivia gets the confidence to actually unlock the machine so that Peter can get into it. And then the way, the way that we leave this episode is this big moment where Peter walks up to the machine to get into it, to do we still aren't sure what exactly what's going to happen when he steps in and they do quick montages of basically his life flashing before his eyes of uh, moments with him and Olivia 
key moments throughout his life. So it feels like a culmination of something. Now, these are deployed with the with the score swelling in like a really nice and like emotional way. But I think that they get to like a seven out of 10 on the emotion scale. But if we had paced this out slower and made this feel like a bigger sacrifice, we could have got to like a 10 out of 10 and especially lived in those quick cutting flashbacks a little bit longer to really hit us. And as he steps into the machine and it locks in and it looks like he's about to become a Jaeger pilot in Pacific Rim or something, um, then all of a sudden we cut and Peter is waking up in the middle of a battle and he looks grizzled and he looks like John Connor in Terminator 2 with a military jacket. He's looking a little bit older. His hairline's a little bit worse. And he's looking around dazed as this battle is happening. And he sees one World Trade Center standing there and a plaque dedicated to the victims of September 11th. Plaque dedicated September 11th, 2021. And all of a sudden we realize we aren't in Kansas anymore. Somehow, by stepping into the machine, Peter has jumped forward in time 10 years from when this episode was supposed to take place because it's 2011 in the fringe timeline. So we are now in 2021, not as many surgical masks as you would expect to see for 2021, but he's there and he's confused and there we're confused. What are you thinking as Peter, by entering the machine, has now time traveled in some capacity is this real? Is this just his mind blipping? What is happening here, Marcelo? Why the fuck did they do this? Uh, well, first, I want to address, you know, the final moment between Peter and Olivia, because as you guys know, I am a Peter and Olivia shipper. So it's nice that they had that moment. Peter stepping into the machine and seeing the flashes of his life. I thought it would have been really cool if the writers weren't sure that if they're going to get another season or not, I thought it would be really cool just to hype, to, to hype up the emotion, like you said, and move it from a seven to a 10 to show highlights from the series flash in Peter's mind, but only highlights that he was actually there for. But also I thought that it was great as Peter, you know, steps into the machine, one hand connects and there's just a really small moment where we hear Walter go, oh, God. And it's just great. It's just great. I mean, I, I, I don't believe the camera pans over to him, but it's just great. Now, let's get to the John Connor bullshit. I think it's a... I have been a supporter of J.H. Wyman since we started talking about Fringe on the show. But for some reason, this smell like J.H. Wyman saying, oh, guys, if we get renewed, we're going to do some timey-wimey bullshit. And I'm like, is this really why I fell in love with J.H. Wyman? Like, this can't be it. So I'm like, what was it about his writing that I loved? And what was it? Was it this or was it something else that's about to come? But this final scene felt really disjointed to me and I would have preferred it if it would have had Peter stepping into the machine, getting those flashes of the entire series because, you know, at the time that this was made, they weren't sure if they were coming back or not. And then have you know, Peter look up 
the eye open, and then just white and credits, a la Lost. Hello. Um, that would have been much better to me. But, um, yeah, I did not like that Jump to the Future or whatever the hell it was. Yeah, in the moment, I didn't didn't like it because I love the Fringe stuff and I love the multiple universes and I didn't necessarily need some sort of time jumping thing because, again, and it may be unfair to keep going back to previous shows that Bad Robot has made, especially because there are a lot of people on Fringe who didn't work on the other Bad Robot shows. But this also feels like a Desmond moment where, you know, Des would all of a sudden wake up in the future or the past. And the way that we cut from Peter's eye to this stuff felt like that. Like, okay, this machine has unglued him from time. And is that what's happening? And so I do think it adds an interesting element where we thought we were working between a point A and a point B. And now we find out there's an X, Y axis that we weren't thinking about. It will depend on how things go from here whether I think this is some sort of jump the shark moment or not, because it's confusing, but it does make you really want to watch the next episode as soon as possible. And I remember when this aired back in 2011, that week being very long where you're just like, what is going on on fringe? Like things seem so crazy and off the rails. I can't wait to see if they can land this plane or not. So I definitely think that, they maybe bit off more than they could chew with the amount of time that they're willing to chew, but I'm hoping to give them the benefit of the doubt and see where things go from here. But it definitely felt like we are playing all of our cards just in case this is the last game. All right, guys. And with that being said, I think that'll do it for this edition of ready Wait one five. Listen, if you guys like anything that we do on the show at all, and you want to reach out to us on social media, there are several ways to do that. First, you can just reach out to us on Twitter by using the hashtag Radio 815. You can contact us on our personal Twitter on our personal on our personal Twitter page. It's JJ Universe 815. If you want to talk to me personally, you can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at CreekFanatic88. But Matt, if the good folks at home want to talk to you about anything. What's the best place that they can do that? On Twitter, at Matt Crandall. All right, guys. And remember, if you aren't too savvy with the, with the uh, you, know, you know, with the Twitter feeds, if it's easier for you to listen to the show on, uh, on YouTube, we do have a YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Radio815. All the back episodes are posted there for you to enjoy. Until next time. As always, we'll talk back soon. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.